listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be with you this morning as we continue our sermon series on change, looking at encounters people had with Jesus and how they were affected by those encounters. And as many of you know, uh, those are being accompanied with songs. God has just uh, worked out of our congregation. And so after today's sermon, we will be singing another new song based off the text of the scripture. Uh, Our text this morning is in John chapter 8, and I would invite you to turn there and we will begin uh, with the reading of God's word this morning. John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11 says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And all God's people said, Amen. That is our text uh, this morning. Uh, When I had the opportunity uh, to preach uh, for you two weeks ago, uh, another encounter, uh, as I introduced that story about uh, Bartimaeus and him receiving a sight, I I got to say that this story is really a simple story. Uh, Guy has a need. Guy sees Jesus. Guy asks Jesus to meet his need. It's a simple story. Uh, I would say this morning, this is not a simple story. This is a complicated encounter with Jesus with so many different factors that are weighing in on this interaction uh, between a crowd, between the people observing, between this woman, between Jesus. There are a lot of things going on. And I think that is helpful for us when we look at the scriptures that we do have these moments of looking at situations and encounters and we can just say like, okay, That's complicated because, I think that is helpful, because life is complicated. And it's been my experience that not every situation I have been thrust into is cut and dry with easy copy and paste answers on what to do in a given situation. Uh, Last week, I was talking with one of our college students, and they were asking some questions. And it was one of those things that so often we have these questions like, okay, that you come to somebody with and like, okay, hey, what do you do in this situation? And my answer was, it depends. 
because that's how life comes at us so often. And we kind of, um, you know, just commiserated on it would be easier if like we could just have a chart. And so like, okay, like go to section three, now subheading four. And if you go down to C, this is how I respond in any given situation. Uh, But then if we did have that reality, we wouldn't need a continuing pressing in relationship with Jesus to show us how we should respond when life gets complicated. Ministry has taught me that life is complicated, that there are lots of situations where um, if it was presented to me, I don't know how to give a clear-cut answer as to what to do or how to respond or how do we process this. Um, When I, uh, me and Emily first got married, I was still in school at UT Arlington, And one of the things, and even one of the ways we met was by doing ministry on campus. We were both involved at the Baptist student ministry up at UTA. And so in our first year of marriage, I was still a student, and Emily got to be on staff at the BSM as a campus missionary. And so part of that was we helped lead a weekly Bible study for students up on campus. And so it was kind of a unique thing. You know, we were, you know, just into our marriage and we were still got, being able to do the college thing. And so that semester, uh, the Bible studies, we were wa- uh, walking through the book of Matthew. And so I remember one of our, our very first weeks of doing this. So we had invited all these students, some who had been involved, some who weren't, some who were Christians, some who weren't. And so kind of how it worked itself out, we would, um, you know, read the passage and then we would try to facilitate uh, a discussion about the scriptures. And so I remember one of these very early weeks, we were hitting the portion of Matthew uh, where Jesus does his teachings on divorce. And so even uh, though I was uh, new to the ministry, I knew that could be a a particularly touchy subject for a lot of people. And so I kind of prefaced uh, our our talk with, hey, I know everybody has a different story and a different experience, and we all come from different families. Uh, Let's just read the Bible, see what it says, and, and talk about it. So, you know, it was going well. Um, and we had read the text and we, I kind of fielded a few questions and was trying to tread lightly. And then this girl that was in our group that I, I didn't really know, I didn't have a relationship with, she kind of raised her hand and I said, yeah, did you have a question? And she said, yeah, and this is how she started. She said, what if, she said, what if there are two people who are married and they love each other? But then one of them hits his head, and then the other one is crying all the time, and then what do you do? (laughs) What if? I said, that sounds really tough. I don't know. (laughs) The next day, she tracked down Emily on campus, and she shared that her parents had been married, and then her dad had an accident that had set off schizophrenia. And he had left their marriage and had trouble fitting into regular societal norms and so was inevitably living on the streets. And so it had broken apart her family. And so she wanted to know how the Bible spoke to that. And so, so often in life, we are thrust into these situations where we would love a clear, black and white, simple answer. But that's, that's not how life is. And I think we can all recognize that. And so that's one of the things I love about this story is it's, it's not simple. 
This is a complicated scenario, a complicated situation that we see Jesus engaged in. And so uh, on, on the surface, maybe it, it could look like there's some simplicity to it. And so, you know, Jesus is teaching, which is what he has been doing for a while. So he has a reputation. And part of that reputation, he has gained the title of a friend of sinners. And so he is engaging with people that the religious people would not. And so as an aspect of that, he's also gained some enemies that do not like what he is representing here in that time. And so he is teaching and a crowd comes and they bring a woman. And the Bible says that this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And so what do they do? They thrust her in front of Jesus and they want him to uh, kind of uh, take a stand right here. Like what's wrong? What's right? Uh, way in here, Jesus, the law of Moses says that somebody caught in the act of adultery should be killed by stoning. But what do you say? And so there is all these layers that we could pull back, some questions we could ask about this situation because it is not Simple, And so one of the questions you could just ask yourself, like, okay, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Okay, where's the man? Uh, that is a layer to this of what's actually going on in this scenario. Uh, the Bible does tell us uh, that this crowd that brought this woman, it's not because they're um, zealous for personal holiness, that they literally brought her because they're trying to trick and to trap Jesus to discredit him in the ministry that God has led him into because he has gained this reputation that people who have been stuck in sin are coming to Jesus and changing their ways. He is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And so they think they kind of have him boxed into this scenario. Well, one, if he condemns her, maybe he will lose some popularity with the people who have been coming and experiencing the goodness of being brought back into community. But if he doesn't condemn her, then he might lose um, favor in the sight of the Jewish people who hold closely to the Mosaic law. Like is there's this tension between uh, offering her forgiveness or upholding the law that God had passed down to them. And then there's this other layer that they're also trying to trap him as far as how a society is working right now between the Jewish people and the Roman people. Because the law of Moses says that, hey, uh, for certain sins, there's the punishment of death, but they are also under Roman law. And so if the Jewish people actually performed an execution, that would get them in trouble with the Romans because the Romans were the only ones allowed to decree death. There is all these layers. And in fact, that's why the Jewish people actually end up handing Jesus over to Rome to be crucified is because they're trying to circumvent that, uh, that tension right there too. Although their Jewish law, like, hey, we uphold the law of Moses, but we don't wanna get in trouble with Rome. So we're also gonna cut some corners as far as our own interpretation of the law. This is a complicated story. There is a lot of layers. There is a lot of questions. And so it would be one thing if we tried to reduce it to a single thing. People did not come to Jesus and say, is adultery wrong? And I know that's where my heart would wanna to go to make this as simple as possible. I just want an easy answer, Jesus, but that's not how life is. Life is complicated. One of the things I love within this is as this scenario unfolds, as they bring this woman to Jesus and they, they ask the question to try to trick him and trap him into this place, um, uh, Jesus' Jesus's initial response is nothing. If you read it right there, it says he doesn't respond. It says he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt with his finger. And so I love that even for us, you know, that's kind of a simple lesson, not my main point today, but um, um, the apostle James says it really good that each of us should be slow to speak and quick 
to listen. And so although we might feel this pressure, even on us as Christians to take stances in these troubled times, we can take a cue from Jesus that we shouldn't always open our mouth quickly. And so when situations are complicated and all the, all the different parameters are not clear, we don't have to rush to uh, open our mouth and, and then say something that we might have to walk back. So I love that Jesus takes his time. And then as the story unfolds, it says uh, they pressed him. They continue to ask him is what verse seven says. And he um, stands up and he makes this statement. It says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then verse eight says this. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So another thing that can make this complicated for us as we look at the text of scripture and try to just ask what this means for us is there is all this debate and speculation as to what Jesus wrote on the ground. You know, the Bible doesn't give us an answer to that question. So uh, there's all these different takes and scholarly interpretations on what he might have wrote. And I don't have an answer uh, for you today. But there is one thing that has kind of stuck out to me as I've uh, been studying this text this week. Because it says specifically that Jesus wrote in the dust with his finger. And if that kind of evokes a familiarity to you, it should. Because one of the things it says about God in the Old Testament, that when God gave the law, the very law that these people are trying to use to trap Jesus, it says that God wrote the law with his finger. If you can remember that story of Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law from God, and when he receives the Ten Commandments, it literally says that in Exodus 32, 18, that God wrote the law with his finger. So it's kind of an interesting moment, and I don't know what Jesus is doing in this moment. You know, there's some speculation that he actually just like wrote the Ten Commandments. There's some speculation maybe he wrote the sins of the people coming to accuse this woman. We don't know what he wrote, but I do, I do think it's supposed to evoke this idea of as Jesus went through his earthly ministry, it was definitely sprinkled into his encounters and the words that he said and the things that he did that it was supposed to point back to the reality that although Jesus had come in the flesh, Jesus was God. And so I like to think that that's what's happening in this situation, that they come and try to say, hey, Moses said in the law, we should do this. And what Jesus is saying is, I wrote the law. I know exactly what it says. I know how it needs to be upheld. And for me, when I take it that way, uh, my head immediately goes to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, as it often does. And so if you remember that story, which you all should, there is this moment when uh, the children have come into Narnia, but one of the kids, Edmund, he's the worst, he betrays his brothers and sisters over to the white witch. And so there is this moment when um, his brothers and sisters want to rescue Edmund. And so they um, ask Aslan for his help. And so they begin this negotiation with the white witch and Aslan. And there's this moment that has uh, spawned so many memes, but is actually a great line. Because the witch comes to Aslan and says like, hey, you know, it's written in the deep magic that all betrayers belong to me. And then Aslan says, don't quote the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. It's a great moment. <laughs> and so that's literally what's happening in this moment. There is a certain irony to these people trying to trap Jesus with the law of God when Jesus wrote the law. 
It kind of reminds me of when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, that Satan tries to use the Bible to trick and to trap Jesus. There is a certain irony to that. James 4 verse 12 says this, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Jesus wrote the law. They're not going to be able to manipulate him with his own words. But another factor that is at play is, although this is a complicated situation, we should ask ourselves, how did this woman get into this position? Where is the man who would also be culpable? How did this group of people know that this transgression was happening so that they could be caught in the act and dragged in front of Jesus? There is all of those questions. But there is a reality that the Bible makes it clear she was caught in the act. It doesn't debate if she was actually guilty of this sin or not. It's pretty clear that she was. And according to the Old Testament law that God gave through Moses to the people of Israel, she stands condemned. Like it doesn't quibble about that reality. That is the situation she has found herself in. And it should be a reminder of us of the seriousness of sin and how God portrays sin within his word that even within the New Testament, how the apostle Paul explains in Romans 6.23, it says for the wages, for what we earn from sin is death. Like all of us deserve, sin, uh, deserve death because of our sin. That is the, the gravity that God puts on our trespasses against him, against our, our rebellion against what he has set in motion and what we can learn from that. So with this complicated scenario, with this story, what can we learn about the character and nature and relationship we are supposed to have from God? And I'll say one of the things that is very apparent in how Jesus engages this scenario is that our God is a God of undeserved kindness, which you could use as a definition of grace. All of our lives will be marked by an undeserved kindness from God, that there is what we deserve and then there was what we received through Jesus Christ. It reminded me of the old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of my sin. And so that is what that woman receives in this moment from Jesus. She receives an undeserved kindness. It was not Jesus's fault that she was set up or caught in the act. He did not make her choose this course in her life that led to this moment, but how he responds to her in this moment is undeserved kindness. That is something we can learn about God, that when we face uh, these complicated scenarios of maybe we don't immediately have a clear-cut black and white answer, what's right, what's wrong, where does our Lord and Savior turn to? He, learn, he turns to extending kindness. But another thing we need to factor into this story is that if you read all of the Bible, uh, cover to cover, Old Testament, New Testament, a major theme throughout the scriptures is that God is a God of justice. Uh, Jesus even says this in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so how can we marry those two things? If the Bible is clear that she has transgressed and what the Old Testament says for that specific transgression, what is 
she's supposed to receive in kind. It is the penalty of death that all of us deserve for our sin. And so with Jesus's undeserved kindness, does that undo the justice of God? And I would say, no, God's justice and mercy are not in contradiction or in contention with each other. So if you can think back once again to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, when Aslan negotiates the release of Edmund and he says, Edmund is gonna go free, at the moment they don't know why he gets to go free because Aslan has had this audience with the white witch. And the reality is Edmund gets to go free because Aslan has struck a deal that that night he will turn himself over to the forces of evil and they can have him instead of Edmund which leads to the moment where the great lion comes to the witch and they lay him on the stone table and they kill him, which leads to another excellent quote that Aslan says after he is resurrected. He says this, that there is a deeper magic at work in the world that was written in that the witch does not know, that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. God's justice and his mercy are married in the person of Jesus Christ because the punishment for sin, he did not just evaporate into nothingness, he took on himself so that the righteous requirement of the law would be upheld in Jesus Christ. Jesus interacts in our mess with undeserved kindness because he has already taken the punishment for the sins of the world onto his own body. That's how we can see both the justice of God at work and how he is able to continue to offer kindness to his children who continue to rebel and make bad decisions and get themselves into messes over and over and over again. He's going to continue to offer kindness because he has taken that punishment on himself. And I love how John, who, who recounted this in chapter 8, how he says it in chapter 1 of verse John. And I think, you know, he wrote these after Jesus, and so there is this formulation to how he assembled his book. But he actually talks about in John chapter 1, he says, you know, the law did come through Moses. That was God's chosen instrument to bring the law to the people of Israel. But he says this, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that is what is marking this narrative and should be a mark on our lives. Uh, both the mercy, the grace, the undeserved kindness of God, and the justice of God being upheld in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what um, uh, this crowd that assembled probably would have missed is that, you know, that, that's not even a new idea to the people of Israel. They did have the Mosaic law. They did have, hey, here's a list of trespasses. Here's how God wants you to deal with them. Here's the sacrificial system. But they should have looked back even into their own history and what God had been revealing about his nature and character all throughout the arc of history. I would go back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And they would have known that story of how the patriarch, God asked him to sacrifice his own son. But when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord interrupted him and said, there is a, a ram caught in the bushes. And Abraham himself testified that the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. 
And that's what had been lost on these people, that it had been uh, dropped into their histories and stories all throughout um, their entire uh, generations, that although uh, God took very seriously the trespasses against his name and he uh, provided a means for them to um, uh, have a placeholder until the finished work was done, all throughout the Old Testament narrative, there are these moments of mercy where God said, like, I'm going to take this on myself. Like, I'm going to provide the sacrifice. There is going to be a way so that you can remain in relationship with me. What an encounter this is. And I think for us, we can derive a lot of personal application this morning. And so I'd like to think of it in terms of the different people that are present and how that might relate to us in our lives. So let's think about the crowd, um, these people that had brought this woman to Jesus. I think there's this human tendency that whenever we kind of look back at history, um, we, we kind of don't really account for our own human nature. We always tend to think of ourselves like, hey, if I had been in that situation, I would have been one of the good guys. You know, when we read World War II, you know, we always think we would have been the ones who were hiding the Jews in our basement and we wouldn't have gone along with the regime. But the reality is, and it's been proving psychologically in a lot of ways, like by nature, we are conformist. And so there is a good chance that put any one of us in one of those really negative situations, although we might like to think that we would have been one of the good guys, there's a good chance we wouldn't have been. Like, that's just how humanity works. Like, uh, we're going to go along with the crowd. We don't like to rock the boat. We want to fit in. And so even in this situation, you know, um, a, a crowd of people uh, bringing this woman to Jesus, we probably would have wanted to blend in. We wouldn't have wanted to stick our neck out there. And so it is a very much part of our nature, I would say, one of conformity, but then also to be rather judgmental. And, and, and that's a reality. Definitely, you know, bring that into um, circles of faith or circles of religion. It is very easy for us to minimize our own trespasses and maximize how we might be viewing someone else. And so I, I think for all of us this morning, you know, we could just very, very simply try to remind ourselves that when it comes to the interaction in the world around us today, we need to put down our stones. And maybe we don't like to think of ourselves in that regard, but more than likely on some level, all of us are harboring a level of judgment or resentment towards others that we have no footing to stand on as far as how we are willing and ready to condemn others when we look at our own lives. And so let us put down our stones. I like that the story says it starts with the oldest. And so some of the speculation is uh, that, you know, they realize they've sinned the most by that point in their life. And so they were the first to begin to drop their stones. But my hope and realization is that I hope um, with the more mature members who have followed Jesus the longest, we would be the quickest to um, offer kindness and forgiveness and the slowest to turn to judgment. And so I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, those of you who have followed Jesus a long time, and maybe you know the Bible better than most, please be the slowest to offer judgment. Lead the way for us so that we can follow you and remember the undeserved kindness that Jesus has offered to us and uh, be careful about the way we speak of other people made in the image of God who might have struggles that we do not have. Let us be the first to drop our stones. Let us look to Jesus, the perspective of Christ, who we are supposed to emulate. You know, I already pointed out, I love that Jesus takes his time. 
You know, he gets pressed on this issue, but he doesn't immediately respond. And I don't know if that was to prove a point. I don't know if that was for him to gather his thoughts. I don't know if that was for him to pray to the Father to ask for wisdom. But we do know that is he did not rush to give an answer. And I think that's important. I think so often right now, the world is constantly trying to box us into taking a position that God might not necessarily be asking us to take. And so we are constantly presented with these scenarios that we feel like we only have one or two options. We could either condemn something or we could condone it. And if you don't condemn it, you do condone it. And if you do condone it, then you're definitely not standing on the law of God. We feel like we are forced into one of these two positions. And so I love that our savior who we are supposed to emulate gets put in this moral quandary that it does seem like what's the question is adultery good or bad, but there is more going on in this situation. It is not that simple. It's not that cut and dry. And so one, he doesn't give a response immediately. He doesn't open his mouth very quickly, but then two, his default is undeserved kindness. We need to follow Jesus's example when it comes to the difficult situations we are going to be pushed into when two different sides are going to be pulling at us to make a stand one way or another. How does Jesus respond in these situations? It reminded me, and I, and I love the story of Joshua in the Old Testament. Uh, because Joshua is leading the people of Israel into the promised land, and they're about to go up and face this big city called Jericho. You know, they're going to sing, they're going to walk around, walls are going to fall down. It's going to be super exciting. Uh, but one of the things that happens is it says right before Joshua is supposed to lead the people of God into the battle, it says he's out walking, and he is confronted by a figure. And so um, it's like this angelic being that Joshua encounters, but Joshua's default, the very first thing he says is, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And what this figure says, who is revealed to be the commander of the armies of the Lord, he says this, he says, no. And I love that because that's where my head goes so often is, are you for me? Or are you for my enemies? Are you on my side? Or are you on their side? Are you on this side of the aisle or are you on that side of the aisle? And so when um, this figure who I would say is a, a, a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament encountering Joshua and Joshua says, are you for us or for your enemies? He just says, no. Like we don't uh, recruit God to be on our side. He is on his own side and we get to be on his side. And I think that's what's happening right here that they're trying to force Jesus into this false dichotomy of either you can honor the law of God or you can be nice. And Jesus isn't gonna play that game and he doesn't engage in that question. And so we don't have to be forced into this box of everything we do, everything we post, everything we say is either a condemnation of something or we are condoning something. We can take the course of Jesus and be faithful to God and offer offer undeserved kindness in the world around us. Let us be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to show forgiveness, um, quick to show forgiveness, slow to offer condemnation, be quick to love. Let us emulate Jesus. And then finally, we should consider this story from the point of view of the woman. And I know many will immediately identify with her. I would say two of the biggest drivers in all that we do are shame and fear. And so I think we, we can all recognize that. I mean, just the, just the level of shame of being publicly exposed like that. It's like everybody's worst case scenario. Like, hey, what's the worst thing you did? Okay, what if that during that moment, a group of men bust into that moment and then drag you in front of the town and tell everybody? Worst case scenario. But not only that, I, you know, I think we often focus on the shame of this woman caught in this act. But like, they're literally trying to decide if they're going to kill her right then or not. Like the level of fear in that moment, like, 
I have not experienced something like that. That sounds horrible. And so I don't really know what that would be like. But I do know that many of us make decisions out of shame and out of fear. So we need to consider if we are identifying with that woman and what would be our response. How would we interact in that situation where um, uh, the worst thing about us, if you like, have a worst-case scenario in your mind, um, in regards to the Christian faith, what if that came to pass? Here to me is the, the crazy thing about this story and um, the crazy thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worst case scenario is happening for this woman, but I would, and I'm just gonna guess right here, as she looked back on her life after this moment, this might've been one of the best days of her life. The worst thing about her was brought to the very feet of a religious teacher. And she was met with undeserved kindness. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love what it says um, in in the story of Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery. And there's this moment when he gets to confront his brothers. He makes this statement that uh, should reverberate throughout the scriptures into how we view the situations we're thrust into. He says, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And so even if we are being sinned against and uh, uh, drugged before a crowd and exposed to the world around us, what man means for evil, God means for good. And so the worst moment of her life was brought before Jesus And she was met with undeserved kindness. That's the gospel of Jesus. That should be all of our stories on some level that the cross has exposed that we are sinners in need of grace. We could all be that woman caught in that moment. And our prayer in that time would be that we are met with undeserved kindness. I need all of you to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. After you find it, if you are able and willing, I would ask you just to stand up. And I would just ask that as much as you are able to open up your heart and your mind, that you would receive the word of the Lord in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, the only one who can condemn you doesn't. Go and sin no more.